0: Hi, welcome to Ian Weekly and this is your host Todd DeVoe speaking. And this week we're talking to Dr. Daniel Aldrich uh, who wrote the book called Black Wave and it really talks about the three disasters uh, that occurred at one time in 2011. And yeah, can you believe it's been seven years um, since the Japanese tsunami, earthquake, and nuclear meltdown. And so that's what we're going to talk about. It's, It's just an amazing story. Before we get into the interview, I just want to remind you, please share this stuff with your friends and family if they're into the emergency management stuff, because I really want to spread the word about what we're doing here, especially with bringing on uh, great guests like Dr. Aldrich. And uh, yeah, and also join us on Facebook, on LinkedIn, and we have a Facebook group, a private group too, so if you uh, want to get into some of the conversation, join us on over there. And don't forget that we'll be doing the 2019 top 10 books an emergency manager should have on their bookshelf. So it's a 2019 version of this. You can go to the group on Facebook, join in the conversation, put your nomination up there. Maybe you'll see your favorite book on that top 10 list. Now on to the interview. Daniel, welcome to Ian Weekly, or I should say welcome back. Thanks for having me. So last time we talked, you we were you know going into uh, what it's like to be involved in a uh, in a hurricane, I guess with with Katrina. But now you went back and did some studying with the tsunami or the triple threat, I should say, the triple disaster uh, back in Japan. How how was that trip?
1: It was uh, an amazing one. Often really intense. You know, it's been a seven year journey from the first time after 311 I went to Japan and the publication of this book. So seven years at the time felt really long. Looking back now, it's pretty pretty amazing. I was invited within a month of the 311 disasters. As you mentioned, it was an earthquake, a tsunami, and the nuclear meltdowns, right? All three at the same time. I was invited to go with the EERI on a fact-finding mission within about three weeks of, that, uh, of those disasters. And then I just saw immediately there was so much to learn From both what was happening across Japan, that is how different cities, different communities were handling those shocks and thinking about rebuilding then, and then as time went on, between Japan and other countries, right? So the differences between how Japan handles these kind of events and their neighbors like China and India, or even North America. So for me, it was a really amazing process of self-discovery.
0: So you went back there, you took a look, you talked to a lot of people, and then you uh, wrote this amazing book called Black Wave. And... um, don't want to talk a little bit about that book, and the process and, and you know well, obviously what you learned. Unlike a textbook or other academic books that are written, realistically, Black Wave could be read by, by anybody and, and have an appreciation for what the people of Japan went through uh, during this um, triple disaster. Why did you decide to write the book more for, for the populace than than academically?
1: Yeah, it's funny. One of my editors a long time ago said, we academics can kill any interesting story. We just suck the life out of it like a vampire. And I had that in mind the entire time. I didn't want to write a book that was only for the five other academics maybe in my field right, who care about this. I wanted to write a book that the average person who's interested in something that happened abroad could find it. So rather than building a textbook or a really you know, thick book hard to get through, I wanted to talk about stories of individuals, begin the book, book in what really happened to people that I talked to. So I tried to build the book in different layers. That Those first few chapters talk about individual stories, how they got through the process. And then it, it goes from their individual stories to the stories of the cities and towns where they lived. And then it goes up one more level to the, the prefectures, which are the Japanese states where those cities are located. And then it goes up one more level to the national level. How is the national government handling this kind of threat? And then one more step up, comparing Japan to other city, countries nearby. So, I wanted to talk about the story as is a detailed, complicated story, not a straightforward one. You know this is a lot of stuff going on over the last seven years, but also I wanted to talk about it in language that anyone could understand. You know a lot of us academics have this problem of writing in a very thick language, very hard to get through a lot of numbers or tables. I wanted to use really straightforward actually i one of my friends is a great graphic artist, and I wanted to ask her help, and I did to design really easy-to-read tables and charts uh, that were not things that you had to have a magnifying glass to go through.
0: And it is that, and, and it's, a like I said, it's an amazing read. So I want to I talk a little bit about some of the stories that you have in there, and, and I don't want to go necessarily into names and whatnot, but just concepts. And I found it interesting that you were looking at at the elderly and, and elderly is described 65 and older, I believe if I uh, correct me if I'm yep. wrong and, yep. and, and how was, how it impacted them adversely. And then the idea of them leaving their, their cities and what that meant. Um, how did you, I mean like the elderly is, is really kind of a revered uh, in, in the, in the Japanese culture. Um, how come they seem to be more impacted than the elder, other others?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. The stereotype that we have is that in Japan, the elderly are the most important people there. They're the ones who get things first. They get seats on buses and trains. I think generally that's true still, maybe more in Japan than in America, that they really revere the elders. But the reality is when that major shock happened, first with a massive 9.0 earthquake that was so powerful, you couldn't even stand up for about the six minutes of the earthquake. But then a lot of people just got up and fled. Right, their training told them, don't wait behind, don't look for anyone, don't go back for your dog, or for family members, just get up and run. And for a lot of the elderly, when people around them began to flee, that really reduced their likelihood of getting through the shock. Because many of them simply were in wheelchairs or they were unable to get out by themselves. And the distance from where they lived near the ocean, and of course that ocean was about 40 minutes away from being hit by a tsunami, um, that distance was too far to go by themselves. So what we found over and over again, talking to survivors, and then doing a larger scale studies of what happened, was that survivors who lived in communities, where they had people nearby who knew them and cared about them. So it could be a friend, a neighbor, someone in their family, a caregiver, someone who knew that Mrs. Tanaka next door needed help. If they had that connection, who could come, even as the tsunami is on the horizon, right, and say, Mrs. Tanaka, there's been this major shock, we have to get you out. Come with me, and we heard amazing stories. Right, stories from people who literally carried an elderly neighbor on their back up up flights of stairs, like 200 feet of stairs, to get to higher ground to save their lives. People who put the elderly and the infirm in cars, in bicycles, in vans. Uh, really heroic stories, actually, and not as funny. You know, oftentimes, we think about heroes as nowadays those who wear capes, right? People who are on the Superman movies and Batman. But in this case, what you really saw was people making the choice that I really wanted to help out my neighbor, even at perhaps the cost of my own life, even if it means I'm staying longer in this vulnerable spot, that I know there could be a tsunami, I care enough to put that time in. And that was a really powerful story to hear, not just once or twice, but hundreds of times. And we actually found that pattern to be true. If elderly people lived in communities where there were stronger social ties, where they had people nearby who knew them, who walked around, who were engaged, they had a much better chance of surviving. But unfortunately, if they were not living in communities like that, if they were living in communities that people didn't go outside, they didn't know their neighbors so much, they didn't know who was living nearby. So a lot of lessons for me, hearing these stories in Japan, this is not about Japan now, right? This story could be anywhere. It could be Dorian, Hurricane Dorian that's coming down right now, whether it's Florida or Georgia. It could be the heat wave, right, that we had in Chicago a long time ago. In those moments, the most vulnerable people, whether it's the elderly or the very young, whoever it would be, they really need those support networks. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're Japanese or American. What really matters is having that connection nearby.
0: When I go and lecture in the community groups, um, I have a section I talk about, make a friend, meet your neighbor. Uh And I I see this here in California uh, a lot where you Especially those that like live in um, even like condos and apartments, which you think you'd know more people, uh, they they're less likely to know their neighbors uh, than they do right. somebody across the country with Facebook, and I and I yeah. think it's it's trending across the nation. Is that am I? Do you think I'm off on that, or am I about right?
1: No, I mean a long time ago, one of my mentors at Harvard, Bob Putnam, wrote a great book called Bowling Alone, and he talked about in the 1950s and 60s, most people who went bowling, they're part of a bowling league. So maybe they weren't, you know, great bowlers, but they had, you know, five, 10 friends that go bowl with. Over the last 50, 60, 70 years, all of the measurements we have of volunteers, of groups, of memberships, of clubs, of sports events, all of them have gone down. So people are less likely to join a club, they're less likely to volunteer, the number of hours they spend at places like churches, synagogues, and mosques is down, the number of hours they go walking. So all the ways that we try to measure you know, is the society interacting? Is there a life on the streets? Do people go outside their homes? Uh, those are all on the decline. And I think that's for all kinds of reasons. You know, Unfortunately, many of us spend our days on screens,
0: mm-hmm. at the
1: office on one screen and at the home on another screen. So maybe that's part of it. But I think also there's, a, there's a, several things going on. We have more polarization. We have less likelihood of talking about politics or other issues. We have people who really do believe they're living in a dangerous neighborhood, even in a relatively safe neighborhood. I met neighbors nearby who told me they wouldn't you know, leave without three locks in their door, even though the area is actually pretty safe. So I think all kinds of things are interacting now, that we simply have fewer individuals leaving their homes, knocking on the door, reading that new neighbor, saying hello to someone, uh, and bringing that meal to the new family that has moved in, Asking someone who's been in the hospital, "Can I help you out?" I think we simply have less of that than we used to.
0: Yeah, I agree with you 100. percent And, and uh, that book is great. I, I use it uh, when I teach uh, as well, and it's it's a really uh, it, it's an older book now, but it's still relative uh, important. Yeah, I think so. So, in the in the book, you talk about um, a couple. of And we'll go back to the hero thing here for a second. We talk about a couple of heroes that uh, I found really interesting. And it was the one gentleman who jumped in his car and kept driving people back and forth. And at one point, he thought that he was going to – he thought he was dead. Uh, He got stuck in the car and got kind of jammed in. Yeah. Uh, How many of those unsung heroes are are out there in this story?
1: I mean, a lot. Uh, You know, it's, of course – um, the people that we could talk to were people who survived, right? And they often survived again because either they were the person helping or they were being helped by someone. Uh, you know, we talked to some families of those who didn't survive as well, just to get a perspective when it happened. But the reality was, you know, it was, it was pretty remarkable. You had here a triple shock. You had this massive earthquake. It's hard to imagine us in North America how powerful this was but from outer space the whole earth jumped visibly and your G- gps is still not exactly aligned in japan because the whole continent moved about 15 feet as a result of that earthquake that's how powerful it was you couldn't stand up the entire, entire time it was going on then after that 40 minutes later this massive six story wall of water comes ashore and destroys everything in its way. It destroys all the seawalls they had built to keep it out. It destroys all the buildings and all the homes along the shore. It goes up rivers. Even communities that were not directly on the coast were hit by the tsunami that literally snuck up their rivers and came back behind them. And then as those two things are still going on, the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plants are slowly, slowly starting to melt down within about two days, we believe now, of that first earthquake and tsunami. Those melted down. So of course, you have another evacuation. Beyond the evacuation for the initial disasters, 140,000 people leave their homes, many of them still aren't at home yet, right? So in all that, the number of individuals who had to get out there and help someone else, you know, it was a lot of people, probably hundreds of thousands of people helped themselves, their families, their neighbors, kept order. Uh, You know, it was pretty remarkable. At some point, I think we had something like more than a quarter million people uh, on the roads uh, leaving just a few areas and then over a million displaced for a while. And again, you know, we have very few reports of looting or bad behavior. But beyond that obvious stuff, you know, these are individuals who would share their rice ball, the one rice ball they would get every few hours in the shelters. They would share the blankets they had with newcomers. You know, they would offer to go out and look for bodies. Um, You know, there's some amazing stories I think I tell in in the book. You know, one of them was really heartbreaking. You know, uh, a few months after the tsunami and everything else stopped and people are getting back with their lives again, a number of bodies still weren't found yet. And some of the people that I talked to took up scuba diving, uh, not for recreation, but to try and find the bodies of loved ones. Uh, This incredible devotion um, to their families, to their their communities, people who stayed behind even though they were losing money every day. It's pretty remarkable, actually, the the degree to which these people felt whatever the costs are, this is where I belong.
0: Daniel, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to break down this book and the three things that you talk about. One is the, the three disasters and the second part of it that I really want to get into is the recovery.
1: Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST we've deployed mesh networking allowing emergency communication Even when networks are down, augmented reality, and real-time translation, we believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive.
0: Welcome back from that break. And thank you so much for for listening to this and and to the sponsor. Um, Without them, we couldn't bring you what we're bringing today. So please check them out. Check into them. Say hi. And uh, tell them that Ian Weekly sent you. So, Daniel... So you have the three disasters. So the earthquake, and we all here in the United States and around the world saw some crazy video of in Tokyo specifically, uh, of of the earthquake with the liquefaction that was occurring and things like this. So we have that event happening. And then, when did they know that the tsunami was going to be impacting? Uh, and when I say they, I'm talking about the authorities. When did they know the the tsunami was going to impact, and and that they knew it was out of their control to where that the seawall wasn't working.
1: Yeah, so you know it's a really interesting story. So first of all, typically any earthquake out to sea automatically triggers across the entire affected area or potentially affected area, all kinds of warnings. So if you're in Japan, your cell phone makes this horrible noise and says in several languages, English and Japanese, there's a tsunami warning, get to higher ground. That's the first thing, even before there's data that comes in. There's all kinds of radio broadcast towers, so radio and TV networks are broken into by that warning. There's uh, actual radio, um, what they call broadcast speakers as well, playing that message so even before the data comes in. Then there's a whole network of buoys and lidar and radar out in the looking at the ocean to see you know, what's happening out there after this earthquake. Is there indeed a tsunami? And again, really pretty good job here. There was another warning that said a tsunami is coming. The challenge, unfortunately. Was that the first warnings that came out were too low? The prediction from the data that they got initially said very small tsunami, you know, six feet, 10 feet. Uh, in reality, and some of them were, as I said, 60 feet, six zero feet tall. So those first tsunami warnings, which were too low, may have encouraged some people to stay in a vulnerable area. They tell themselves, look, we have these seawalls here, we're going to be fine, no need to evacuate, we have this protection, very expensive, very, very large. You know, it's hard to imagine, again, North America doesn't really have these hundreds of miles of seawalls along parts of Japan's coast, in many cases 30, 40, 50 feet tall, very expensive, um, made of this white shining concrete and tetrapods, a lot of these coastal embankments built to keep out tsunamis. So again, if you're a normal resident in these coastal cities, you see this every day. You see this protection there, this uh, mitigating infrastructure all the time. People that we interviewed said all the time, we thought we'd be safe. And in fact, it's pretty horrible stories Uh, People couldn't see the ocean from their homes behind the seawall. So a lot of them knew there was an earthquake, didn't know about the tsunami. So they literally walked up on top of the seawall to look from the seawall out into the ocean to see what was coming. Now, of course, we know now, unfortunately, the tsunami was so powerful, so large, that almost all of the seawalls crumbled immediately. And some of them came ashore as basically massive projectiles, huge pieces of concrete smashing into buildings, smashing into walls. So no one survived from those areas who walked up on the seawalls. That was one problem. Um, The the authorities also didn't know that the seawalls were not going to hold. Again, they had good warnings, maybe a little bit too short. They came out pretty quickly. There's a drill in Japan to flee. But again, one of the things we talk about in the book is if you have this kind of infrastructure around you all the time and not a lot of drills, then you might think at that moment of decision, I'm probably pretty safe. I mean, speaking honestly from my own experience, I was in Hurricane Katrina in 2005. When we first got both the voluntary and the mandatory evacuation orders, my wife and I were young and dumb. And we we figured we'd be fine. Whatever happens, you know, our house is elevated. We're in an area pretty far away. And we also envisioned that the protections there would keep us safe. Of course, that was very wrong. We were very fortunate to get out, thanks to a neighbor. But in any case, I saw very strongly here in Japan The infrastructure that we take for granted can actually be a moral hazard, right? You really, if you rely on that to to keep you safe rather than fleeing the area, that can be a problem really caused by the infrastructure rather than as a result of the infrastructure.
0: You know, that's an interesting take on it because as emergency managers, you know, we we look at how to mitigate these issues and and we want to have um, this protective measures being put in. Uh, for the residents that live in our jurisdictions, uh, but at the same time, you're right. I mean, does it give the false sense of uh, security? You know, when the Japanese That's right. yeah. yeah, so when the when the Japanese uh, tsunami was happening, obviously on the west coast. Um, I was working for a, a coastal jurisdiction at the time. And uh, we we closed the the uh, the beaches because we were having some issues associated. We knew it was coming, um, and so we closed the beaches and whatnot. And the odd part about it is people came from the inland to see the tsunami, and without understanding what the what the impact could be. You know, obviously we we had some impact in some of the ports and stuff like this, and some of the harbors, uh, but it wasn't the big wave that everybody thinks about. You know, so so people yeah. are curious for sure, and they come down to the coast to see the this this big wave potentially coming. You know, the joke, the joke always is, "Oh, I'll get my surfboard to surf it." You know, so, right. yeah. so so it's a weird education thing that we're doing uh, as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's even more markers, right? In some of these Japanese towns, there are actually these big piles of rocks with inscriptions in them. that say don't live or go beneath this level of elevation because it's dangerous. These are like 400 years old in some cases. And of course, they've been ignored for 400 years since they were built. Slowly, slowly, the communities began to move closer and closer to the shore. All of us have a fascination with the shore, right? Everyone likes to be near the ocean or on the lake. Um, but the reality is that makes us very vulnerable. And it's, and it's funny, I think for me, the broader lesson here is so much of the world's population right now has been moving into coastal cities, Mumbai, Bangladesh, Tokyo, of course, LA, you know, New York, Boston, so many of the cities that have growing populations are exactly vulnerable to these kind of sea level threats, whether it's a tsunami itself, in the case of someplace like Wellington, New Zealand, or in the case of Los Angeles or, or Boston, New York, some kind of major storm or flooding. Right? And again, we often take for granted that oh yeah, I'll be fine. You know, there's some kind of you know gully between me and them. There's a concrete reservoir. I'll be okay. You know, we really need to think more. What kind of training are we getting? What's the message that we're sending? You know, do we really have too much faith that these kind of systems in place will save our lives?
0: One of my favorite stories um, about the uh, tsunami in Phuket um, was the young girl. I forget how old she was. Uh, I want to see if she was like. Uh, like ten years old or something like that from London, who, uh, right. yeah, who who was able to? She took a class and learned about tsunamis, and she's credited for saving you know lives on that beach. And so I, I think yep. you know teaching our our young people about uh, about this is probably the best bet at this point, isn't it?
1: Oh yeah, I mean education should be and anything that we're thinking about right now, whatever risks and hazards we face, our city faces, our society faces, we should really be having risk and education in schools. It's kind of crazy, right? I mean, we, we have all kinds of threats already in schools, whether it's school shootings and other things, right? And we should really be speaking honestly with the kids. Look, these are the kind of risks that we face. I don't need to scare them or put them off, but if they know what's going on, like she did, as you pointed out, she saved the lives of everyone on that beach. No one else was thinking a tsunami is coming. She recognized it immediately from the readings that she had done in her classwork. She saved all the lives in 2004 with that Indian Ocean tsunamis, right? So we need people like her. We need young students, young people who have an exposure to what risks and threats are, and also what to do about them, right? That's the other thing. It wasn't that you just stand there and stare and take you know take pictures. It's that you get out of harm's way.
0: So now we move from the tsunami to the nuclear meltdown caused by the tsunami. And and bad engineering, for lack of a better term.
1: Yeah. American engineering, right? I mean, the crazy story there is in the 1960s, what were the models that we had for safe nuclear power plants? Almost all of them came from North American engineering under GE. In GE, most of the plants were built in the Midwest. So, you know, what are the biggest threats in places like, I don't know, Illinois and other places? It's tornadoes. So the, the typical risk response had been, place all of the backup systems in the basement. It works really, really well if your threat is a tornado. It's a big disaster if the threat is water coming in, right? And swamping those diesel generators and batteries, which would happen, unfortunately.
0: Fukushima melts down, um and you start evacuating people. And this is what I really found interesting because I, I I never really thought about this. Is the people coming from the that area, the the EPZ, they were the uh evacuation uh, planning zone. They were, um, or emergency planning zone, I should say, they were kind of discriminated against. Uh, yeah. Talk about that a little bit. I mean, just, that just kind of blew my mind.
1: Yeah. So this is one of the unfortunate uh, realities of, of nowadays. You know, Radiation remains a dread risk for all of us, right? We can't typically see it or smell it or measure it. But I get in my car, I know the risk of a car accident. I'm driving through an area that's in a radiation plume. I've got no idea what that means. So regrettably, a lot of the evacuees from Fukushima who left the area to go to other prefectures, other states in Japan, found themselves at the end of a lot of discrimination. All kinds of stuff happened. Uh, Gas stations would not serve you if your car had Fukushima license plates. Schools wouldn't take your kid if it said he's from Fukushima. People broke off marriages from people who were from Fukushima from the evacuation zone for fear that they or their grandkids would get cancer. Uh, People had bullied kids in Tokyo and other big cities who came there again fleeing the evacuation, fleeing the radiation, saying that, you know, you're a leukemia boy, you're going to make us all sick, we're going to become sick. You know, so a lot of a combination of ignorance and unfortunately humanity, right? Humanity loves to make us uh, divide ourselves up. And, you know, being from an evac- evacuation zone uh, was an easy way for people to make these people the targets so uh, not really easy in fact one of my students here at northeastern she's worked over the summers with a lot of the evacuees in sort of these retreats where they take them away from fukushima by themselves far away and just have them in a quiet calm peaceful area with no one else around and many of them say this is the first time they've gotten someplace where they're not worried will i be judged if i tell someone where i'm actually from some people are actually lying about where they're from they told their children don't tell a classmate. Don't tell your new friends where you're from. Tell them you're some someplace else, but not Fukushima. That's how severe the, the prejudice was against radiation uh, exposure.
0: So the, the the government goes back. They they're looking at some areas that uh, that are clean, I suppose, from from radiation, and they're telling people they can move back. Yet these cities are no longer. Um, people are moving back. They're, they're, the population is is really low. Why are they deciding, is it is it because of the radiation, or, or are they settling back into where they moved to? What's stopping them from moving back to their hometowns?
1: Oh, mine, a lot of things. Uh, so first of all, the government has gradually lifted most of the evacuation orders, not all of them yet, most of them. And some of those communities sat uninhabited for seven years, so that packs of wild boars and ostriches, escapees from the zoo, right, are more numerous in those communities than people are. So think about a ghost town occupied by an ostrich pack. We actually seen this with our students when we go there to visit what's going on. So one thing is people haven't been living there. The longer you're away from a place and the more negative things you hear about it, the more uncertainty that you have, the less connections you feel to it. And the fewer connections you feel to it, maybe you're going to stay in your new community in Tokyo or Osaka or in Sapporo, someplace where you have new friends. And that's a big part of this process. You had a strong network before you evacuated. The evacuation may have broken that up, depending on how you moved out as a group or as a a family or as an individual. And if you lost most of your ties and you're building new ones over those seven years, even if the government says, come back, some of these communities, there are three students where there used to be over 500 I uh, know, there are fifteen families where there were fourteen hundred before. I mean, really small numbers for a lot of the area, and that's for all kinds of reasons. So again, you've got a new—you know, you had a job in Fukushima. The evacuation meant you left it for seven years or five years. Why would you go back? You have a new job someplace else. Uh, you had a home in the there. You're paying a mortgage. Eventually, some of the banks did forgive the mortgages in those communities, so you got a new house. You're paying a new house someplace else. Uh, you have a you have new friends in someplace else or you're just so concerned that this is the truth as well a lot of the women with children especially remain wary of any claims by the government about health and radiation exposure they simply do not trust anything the government says a lot of interesting documentaries about this there's a whole citizen science movement that sprung up local residents making their own Geiger counters measuring radiation by themselves uh, not trusting the numbers they're getting either from the government or from the power utility that used to run the nuclear power plant, both of which typically are those responsible, right, for that kind of data. So all kinds of reasons, distrust, new jobs, new friends, time has elapsed, people have moved on. Um, I think it would be a hard sell overall to repopulate those areas of Fukushima to where they used to be. There are some people moving back. There are some young people moving there, but not nearly as many as there used to be.
0: So this is kind of a a weird... um side effect to this whole entire thing. So the population has gone down, or population rebirth birth, right, has gone down. And in the uh in the book you talk about the uh, uncomfortable situation that these families are put into because they're all basically living in the same house. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So I mean a bunch of different things. You know, one is that, you know, of course evacuations themselves are often sort of standardized. What do we need for people? We need a certain size home for, you know, a husband and a wife or a young couple with two small kids. And a lot of those are unfortunately not built around the realities of rural life in Japan. So what was supposed to be term housing for a small number of people, and these are basically FEMA trailers, right? The people, the places they put them are, you know, they're 20 feet long, they're about 16 feet tall, maybe 15 feet wide, with one door and two windows, made of aluminum, really, really hot in the summer, really, really cold in the winter. And, and those homes are where people have lived for up to six or seven years. In fact, I, I was there this summer. Uh, this was July 20, 2019. And there are still families living in these kind of evacuation shelters that, again, very poor, poor quality. Um, they're, you know, they're, they don't smell very good. They're very hot or very cold. And for a lot of families that lived together before as an extended family, right, so grandparents were there, the parents and the grandkids, there's simply not space in these shelters. I mean, if, if, if two people have a hard time uh, surviving. A lot of marriages are broken up. Uh, but certainly a family that had, you know, space for everyone before, it's impossible. So this is one of those moments, again, where decision planners thought through what's the average need for families evacuating. And probably for the average family, it's fine, right, for one or two people. But once you have an extended family, it's not going to work very well. The other interesting thing was, beyond just the physical structures they moved into, was how do you move people, right, out of their homes and out of temporary shelters? What do you do? And, you know, you could move them randomly. Uh, Maybe you can assign the elderly and the vulnerable higher scores and move them out first. Uh, The problem with that is uh, what we call the lonely deaths syndrome. If you move individuals from their homes to new housing, permanent housing, uh, without connections, without friends, without doctors nearby, you're really condemning them to a life in isolation. And a number of communities, not all of them, but a number of them, a little bit more than half probably, tried group, group relocation. They would move families with other families nearby all together into a new area. Really pretty interesting idea, and we found a lot of data that shows this group relocation was much healthier for those people who were evacuated. Right, They had friends nearby still, people that they knew they could rely on, uh, friends that would help them through the emotional and anxiety they would feel. So that was an interesting spin as well, not just where they moved into. Was it a a permanent home? Was it a temporary home? But were they living by themselves there in that new place, or were they there with their friends and family?
0: Right, and, and I found that kind of interesting too when you're talking about um, some of the services like the people who have to walk to the convenience store or whatever, and they found that that stuff was, uh, was really important as well. Uh, and it was kind of interesting to see that you, uh, you addressed those issues as well.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I didn't think about this very much before, but we did all these interviews with people in these, in these shelters, and they told us if it's more than basically a half mile away, we're not willing to walk there which doesn't sound that far, right? But these evacuation shelters, the temporary shelters, the new homes are often in the middle of nowhere. And rural Japan is much like, think about any place rural Virginia or rural Connecticut. There's no stores nearby. There's no hospitals nearby. There really aren't many sidewalks nearby. And what we're doing is taking often the elderly who are stuck in these lower end homes and putting them in an area without all the networks and all the infrastructure they had before. So we strongly encourage in the book people to think through If you're moving, especially the elderly, to a new location, make sure from wherever they're living, within a half mile, they have all the necessities, all the infrastructure, doctors, libraries, a place to walk around, a park nearby. If it's more than that, people that we talked to wouldn't leave. All the surveys that we did, people said, I'm not willing to walk that much further.
0: Daniel, I could talk to you all day long about this book, and we're coming close to the end here, but I want to let everybody know, just read this book, right, get it, Black Wave, and... When you read through it, project what it would be like to have the same type of situations happen here in the United States, because there are tons of parallels between what you talk about in Japan happening and what has happened, in say Katrina or Houston or um, Puerto Rico and and these areas um, that that are there. So it's it's really uh, it really plays into what we do here in the United States, Canada. Uh Mexico, you know this is definitely uh it's it's not just Japan before I let you go though, how can we uh how can someone get in touch with you?
1: yeah, so we've got a bunch of websites, so we have websites at Northeastern where we have information on the students in my lab and what we do I've got a place uh you can find on google at b e press all my articles are there for free, no firewall, no pay, and also I've got a Twitter account as well where I try to keep up um, what's going on in the field. Have to tweet out new things that are happening in publications and also upcoming events as well.
0: Okay, one last question. Sure. If, you, if you could talk to all the emergency managers at, what time, at one time, what would you say to them?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, we often think about the wrong things as a priority. This social infrastructure stuff is so important. Keep, keeping people connected, building a sense of trust and interaction, making cohesion and collaboration possible. I would say that should be first and foremost in every step The evacuation step, in the rebuilding step, the recovery step, the planning steps, where are the people? How are they connecting to each other? That should really be first and foremost in our minds.
0: Well, Daniel, as always, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. You're always welcome back. And I can't wait till your next book comes out.
1: All right. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon.